0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch-
2: That's chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by
2: law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
3: Hi, I'm BD Wong. And you're listening to And The Tony Goes To.
2: It's a look back at Broadway's most
1: magical night. And all of the winners reminisce with delight. With their talents and brilliance, they always impress. And The Tony Goes To My Special Guest. Have you ever dreamed of winning a Tony Award? Did you ever practice your Tony acceptance speech in the bathroom mirror? Did you grow up watching the Tony awards every year? Do you have a collection of Tony award shows on VHS tape that you refuse to throw out? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Every week I interview your favorite Tony award winners. And together we go down memory lane as my guests share intimate and never before shared details about their Tony experience. By the end of every episode, you're going to feel like you just won a Tony. Welcome to And the Tony Goes To. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Welcome today's Tony winner, B.D. Wong.
4: And the winner is
2: B.D. Wong.
4: I would like to thank the brother and sister song and dance team, which have recently moved into my body and are now living there. For coming to the Eugene O'Neill Theater and getting along, and uh, I would uh, I celebrate this beautiful, beautiful thing with everyone who witnesses me tonight. Uh, I thank New York City for embracing my joy of performing. I I'm sorry. Wow. Uh, I thank the uh, acceptance of risk that you have uh, it symbolizes for me uh, the acceptance of the risk of everyone involved with a beautiful thing that is called M. Butterfly I thank the support of all of my wonderful, wonderful friends the best in the world there are too many to name McDaniel, I got the asterisk Um, I also thank the most important teacher and friend and a beautiful man into whose eyes I look every night at the Eugene O'Neill Theater and see two kinds of love. The love of a poor, deluded white devil for his butterfly and the love for a seasoned, professional, brilliant actor for his young protégé. Uh, I also thank, from the bottom of my heart, William and Roberta Wong at 1886 40th Avenue, San Francisco. Yeah.
1: Hi, B.D. Wong.
4: (laughs)
3: Hello, Alana Levine.
1: So, as you may be aware, you just won a Tony. I did. It feels like real time. Just seconds ago. Um, One of my favorite all-time things as someone who has listened to many, many Tony speeches religiously, ending with the address of your parents home maybe one of yes. the sweetest most personal moments ever it tells such a story
3: yeah i don't know what i was actually thinking of course this was way before social media and even stalkers and things you know it was like not even a i don't know i was very naive about it i don't know what i was actually thinking i was just but but i will say that my memory is that my brain was overwhelmed with um, just all of these different kinds of uh, uh, thoughts and worries of covering everything or or uh, taking a moment or I don't know what and and so that came out of my mouth and you know people had funny things to say about it and uh, um, it was what it was but it did speak to my um, my tether to my parents, you know I felt very uh, indebted to them and I felt very um proud of of the all of everything everything that we went through um in my relationship with them to get me to the point where I was a, actually a professional actor and so that felt somehow the ultimate way in some way I don't know how what it was I don't know what it was exactly I'm I'm not sure why I thought to do it that way I can't remember
1: <laughs> was that a preconceived uh, notion, or did that happen spontaneously in the moment
3: I don't I cannot tell you. I doubt nothing was preconceived and and and, and I think that um, uh, it was probably just thinking, "Oh, yes, this is where they're from, and this is who they are, and then the, the address came out of my mouth. I, I think love that's what that. happened.
1: I love that. And and I wonder did people show up at their door wanting to congratulate them or No,
3: I think my mom got some letters. Yeah. Yeah. That's about it. And that's thankfully, right? Because you know anything could happen in a situation like that. And and especially nowadays you think, oh my gosh, what would you, you know. But yeah. it was it was great. And um so that yeah. I don't I, I don't I wish I could tell you exactly what I was thinking but maybe the fact that I don't know what I was thinking is
1: is useful. Is telling? Yes, exactly. You um you won this Tony in 1988 for a Broadway show which was your first and Butterfly and yeah. you know there there are so many um incredible things surrounding the story of you and the show One thing that was very sort of newsworthy at the time, but maybe less known to some of your newer fans, is that before that show, had they seen you in something and opened up the program, it would not have said B.D. Wong. It would have said your, your birth certificate name. And I wonder- my government name, yeah. Your government name. <laughs> yeah. Um, I wonder, well, were you, did you grow up being called BD by anybody? Uh,
3: yeah. So actually, um, no, I was never called BD when I was a kid. My dad had been called BD when he was a kid. And um, my brothers, my two brothers and I and my dad all have the same initials. And when Stuart Ostrow, who you know, uh, asked, he was a producer of M Butterfly, asked me if I would take the gender out of my name, I said, oh, okay, great. And he, he wanted to just put B Wong in the, in the program, which I thought seemed really dumb. I said, well, that doesn't feel like a name, and it just feels kind of lame. It just feels like you're covering something up or something like that. So I recalled that my dad's nickname was BD, and I just used it. And I really had fully intended to just go back to my government name, which is Brad. Uh, Bradley is my name, and and I was in, in equity and registered in equity in SAG as, as Brad, and and so I was perfectly fine going back to that. But then after the play opened, it just kind of, it just became my name, and and so I just stuck with it. That's the short version of the story. There's a lot of permutations of me going to the DMV and all of that stuff, but but
1: well, um, that's always fun. Can you tell us the story <laughs> of going to the DMV? <laughs>
3: Well, I'll just tell you really quickly that in, in the I don't know in the, within the last twenty years, the, I took the periods out of my name that were in the M Butterfly program. It said B period D period Wong, and that was my right. name for a while. Right. And then I decided that it was really for a lot of reasons. I didn't want I didn't want to have two names anymore, so I wanted to commit to one name. So I I, I encouraged people to call me BD, and I stuck with it. And then I decided, well, that means I have to really change all my credit cards and my, and my driver's license. So I went to the DMV, and the DMV would not allow me to have my name with periods in it. And um, it, was, it came out literally, it came out B, comma, D, period, was my name. And I said, I'm not, that's a, that cannot be my name. I cannot say that on my driver's license. That, that's just horrible. Right. It just sounds terrible with a comma in the middle of my name. So I just said, oh, it's great. It looks great without periods, actually. I like it without periods. So I just kept it. But it was the DMV being really weird about it, like being impossible about it, like not allowing me to even put periods in the search field when you were typing, you know, that kind right. of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So that thus the name was born as we yes. know it today.
3: Yes. Thank you.
1: So I want to talk about how this life-changing role came to you. Um, And if you could talk a little bit about how the show and Butterfly, for you as a really young actor with not many New York credits yet, ended up finding yourself front and center and winning every award possible for this show.
3: Yes, okay. Well, I was living in Los, Ange- Los Angeles. I had I had come to um New York fresh out of like dropping out of of college. I was I was very unhappy in my program at college and I was not learning anything and I felt very very stagnant and I said I'm just going to go to New York and I I saved some money and I I eventually just we got on a plane and went to new york and i started um working i got my cards and stuff like that but then eventually i got my first job which was um a tour an, uh, of a of a of a show and then it ended up in la and i was in la and then i decided oh well here we are in la i'm going to stay here after the show closed the show ran for about six months and um I stayed there and I started working. I was working in, and it was doing these small parts in TV shows and in little movies and stuff. And then I got this call from the agent about this play that I had no concept of. And he said, do you want to fly yourself to New York to to read for a Broadway play? And I said, not really, because I was making a living and I don't know what this thing is. And that would that would be me spending three hundred dollars or whatever it was right to fly to new york to new york for for something that doesn't make any sense uh you know because the odds are whatever so i said well i suppose i shouldn't say such a thing unless i read the play and so on friday i asked him to get me the play and then on monday the play came in a fedex envelope and i read it like 20 pages of the play uh and as the I was just ripping pages out of the script, you know, reading from page to page. It was just like an amazing, um, validating experience to read the words of an author who spoke a language that I really understood. And I had, uh, coincidentally, I was studying with Donald Houghton, my acting teacher, in a Hollywood basement studio, like, you know, like a $10 a class kind of class, but he was a great teacher. And one of the things he went, he was studied with all the actor studio people, and he was saying, you know, this is what you are. You're a messenger. And the messenger is the person who breathes life into the author's words and commits to the ideas that the author is trying to convey. And I thought that sounded wonderful. And I said, well, I'm willing to do that, but I don't really know what that means. And so coincidentally, I read this play and I thought, oh, I see what this means now to uh... Uh, um, uh, to commit, to make the, the, to commit your, your, your soul to be, be the messenger of this person's uh, words and their, their thoughts and their ideas. And, and that's what helped me to get the part Donald and I worked on the part. Donald worked on the part with me for, for, Months until the audition it was maybe a couple of months until the audition, and I b- borrowed money from my mom and dad like ninety nine dollars to get on some cheapy airline to go to new york to to have this opportunity and I told them we were never going to see the money back, and that i wasn 't really going to get it, but there were kind of you know well known people working on it. the director was a famous British director, and all of that, and i said i w- I want to have the experience, I think the experience would be a good one to have so I went um to New York, and I auditioned for the play, and then you know, through the whole process of the of the auditions and the callbacks and reading with other actors, and they gave me the part. I never thought I would get the part, but I did say that it, it felt to me like a life-changing part. And I always said, "Well, this is this person is going to really, I mean, if this person who gets this part does what they're supposed to do, then they'll, it will be really wonderful for them." Is what I thought. And then I kind of regretted saying that as soon as I got the part. And um
1: why the pressure of that?
3: Yeah, I thought, oh, don't jinx. You know, you 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 shouldn't say that that. You know, right. it was okay to say it when it wasn't the part wasn't mine. It was okay to say that. Right. But then the part became yours. And then I, you thought, well, oh, uh, you know what? No, it's a good that. part.
1: It's a yeah. good part. Yeah, it it serves the part. play. Yeah.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
1: <laughs> John Lithgow, that's the part. Yeah. Um, well, I yeah. want to talk about John Lithgow. Was he? Oh God was he cast from the beginning or was he someone who came on later?
3: No, this is really a good story because I've never really told this story before. Um, I got cast first and then I was called by John Dexter and Stuart Ostro a few months later. There was a delay in the production. They decided to kind of go later than they were going to go. And so there was a long delay and they said, okay, we're ready to cast the leading guy now and we want you to come to New York and read with them. And so I, Did so, and um, the three men were uh, John Lithgow, Edward Herman, and Brian Dennehy. And um, it's a really long story, which I I probably shouldn't get into because John Dexter was really not nice to me, and it's it's a it's a rather traumatic story. But the point is that I read with all three of them, and I secretly fell in love with John Lithgow, and I didn't want to say so because I didn't want to them to I didn't want to tip it or or be, you know, uh, in in the way of it. I think they did ask me my opinion at one right. point. David David was of course there, the playwright David Wong. And um it, it was really clear that he was he was the the guy for the part. I mean, it just he just um he just came to life in the part in in a way that was so moving and and theatrical and right for the production and he was so he loomed so large literally and 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 so it was there was just something wonderful about it and and then they gave it to him and and that began a kind of relationship with him that he was not bargaining for because i was so green mm-hmm. and he um he really he really taught me um at 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 a very early age what it meant to be the leader of a company and what it meant to um take charge and what it meant to be responsible and sensitive and and mindful of people's feelings and and of their experience and and it was it was it was probably the best part of the experience for me is my relationship with him he he really took care of me and and I really I'm, I I got to tell you I really tested his patience I was really inexperienced and I I had a lot of bad habits and I had a lot of things that I I I had a, a, a good instincts you know as an actor and all that stuff and I was um, good in the part, I guess, but I, I you know, he, it, that, the, that all kind of goes away when you're working with somebody that doesn't really know exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and he was wonderful. I mean, I, I can't say enough about it. He, he was constantly thinking of ways to um, bring it out of me that in a way that wasn't um, intimidating or, or in, a, in a way that was, wasn't demanding of him, to, so that I could give him what he needed and all of that stuff. He was great.
1: When you say that the director was unpleasant during the audition process, was that true? Were you, were you battling with that or trying to handle that throughout the entire rehearsal process? Or did things find a meeting place once John came into the mix uh, that felt safer for you? Or were you always having to work in a space where you didn't feel supported?
3: This is really interesting because this was in 1988, and this, or even 87, as it started, and and it was before the concept of um, uh, sex harassment. It was before Me Too. It was before all of these things, and there were there was a lot of game playing going on um, that I really don't want to get into, but I don't have to get into. The point is that I would absolutely respond to this whole situation in a very different way in 2020. Right. Now, and I was, there was already, I mean, when I got the part, I was warned by people about about his relationship with young actors and -hmm. and what that was like. And then it was really interesting the way it played out because at first I saw no evidence of it and I thought, oh, well, this isn't what they said at all. And then it turned at a certain point uh, there was always a little in, in indications of it here and there but i was very naive to it and and i wasn't i didn't know what to look for and i and, and so these things kept kind of um it, you know when a people when a person is kind of manipulative in a certain way and with a particularly with a young person and this is why you know advocates for children are, you know, it's, it's such an important thing to understand that a, a, a young person, and I wasn't a child, but I was a young person with a very limited experience. And so I'm coming from to it from a very vulnerable place. And he's a kind of, um, uh, what's the word, um, a figure that's an authority figure and leveraging his authority on me. Right and um and you know like what what is the first thing you or what is one of the major things you're thinking when you get your first broadway show don't get fired right and and so um i did deal with that throughout the entire process right up into 12 minutes before the house opened on opening night and um it was um in retrospect i was i'm actually very proud of myself because i was very focused and I was very, um, I kept it together,
4: mm-hmm.
3: but, um, it was in, in, when I think back, um, it, really a nuisance and really, uh, kind of insidious. And, um, and so that was, that was unfortunate. And, 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 and that was one part that John uh, Lithgow stayed out of because he was not really privy to it. He didn't, know, he didn't really know what was going on. Right. And, um, uh, but it was it was it was a very interesting education and it and it also gives me a real perspective for people that speak up now and that have uh that that, that there's a a real advocacy for for the rights of a of a younger person in a relationship to an, an older person in a, in a particularly in a kind of theatrical context because in, in in you know in, the, in our world we touch each other, we do this, we do that. It's it's it, we there's a lot more leeway than in a, in another um, office kind of environment.
1: That's right. And
3: and so there was that going on too.
0: Right. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
4: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
2: No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry.
0: That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
2: ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No process over by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Was this the first time you had played a woman?
3: Oh no. Um I had played, well first of all, um there was a there was a legacy of me playing women or or being in drag um throughout my entire almost my entire um acting um identity and it started when my drama teacher did charlie's aunt as my senior play as the senior play and she picked the play so that i would play that part and it was i was really successful in that part it was my first like real leading part in a comedy and i had a blast doing it and i understood the uh, well, I sound, seemed to not have a problem with the stigma of of being dressed in drag, and um, that was a big part of it. And then there were other things that happened, like um, uh, I got cast. Oh well, then I got cast in La Cage. I was in the the singing ensemble of La Cage, and the singers in the original Broadway production of La Cage were in one number, the La Cage number in drag. They weren't Kajel the, uh, as you as we know them you know the main core of course um, right uh, of the course in 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 lakaja is is in drag all the time and then there were the, I was like a fisherman but then in the lakaj number when they wanted more people I was in in, in dragging that and so I was in heels and and in dressed as a show girl and all of that stuff and i I was really comfortable with it I mean I was really good at it and then when I oh before that, I was in, oh, this was so amazing. I was in, um, on the Lower East Side, there used to be this theater called, um, um, oh, what was it? It's named after a French uh, theatrical avant-garde theater person. And it was called the Bowery Lane Theater. It's now a clothing store. And it was the Bowery Lane Theater, and it was called the company was called something was French. Okay, it was a it was a pretty well known company down in that area where La Mama and all those companies are. Right, and they were doing this production of a play called epicene The Silent Woman, and Epicene is like a it's like a restoration play, and it's about a man who marries this woman who won't speak, and then it turns out that the woman is a man, and um, I got cast in that part, and I remember that I had to leave. To do something else, I got a job somewhere and I had to give the part up. I never got to do the part. I was all excited about it. There were costumes made and everything. And then I had to find somebody to replace me. They were really mad at me. And the person that replaced me was Alec Mappa, who, who covered the part on Broadway when I did M Butterfly, and then who took the tour and went to LA with M Butterfly, yes. who I knew as a uh, who I grew up with in San Francisco. So I said, "Oh, Alec, you you should do this and come audition for this guy and Alec came and got Epicene and then did Epicene while I was going off and doing something else. I forget what it was, and so that was one thing, and then uh, so there was Lacage and epicene, and there was there was just thick things that came up every once in a while. those were the main ones, and so I was comfortable with it, and yeah. i was re- I had no stigma about it at all at a time when there was much more stigma than there is now,
1: yeah. Not but that you, that's a,
3: such a not that's a, that's such a thing to brag about, but it was it was a little more challenging at that time to kind of um, calm yourself about about your ability to access um, a different side of you or a side of you um, as a
1: performer. And also, I mean, whether whether you should be proud of it or not, I think that many actors at the beginning of the career, their careers are very concerned with being typecast or being seen yes. in one way. So yeah. so the idea that you just took on these things you loved without self-consciousness or without concern for what that means for future casting, which we know having having known your story now, because we are looking back at this, the yeah. wide array of roles that you have done is extraordinary. And well, yes, all and of I them,
3: think, I I I thanks. And I think that it's part of my self-identification as a character actor. Mm -hmm. I never really um, wanted to um, look um, down on any part. And and the part that was actually, if you really want to know, the part that was furthest from me was the part that was the most interesting and continues to be so. And now it's just now that I'm getting older that I'm enjoying playing someone that's closer to myself, that talks like me and that walks like me or that has my sense of humor. And and that's new to me, kind of. I mean, I, r- I really have for many years. Aside from my being on Law and Order, which was rather bland, um, the, the the rest of it is all kind of character work. And and I think it's because I gravitate towards this a sense of of I was going to say stretching, but it really it's like um, being something that you're not, or or trying to explore um, performance styles and aspects of your performance that are as different from your own natural default setting as possible.
1: Yeah. Were there parts, first of all, were you familiar? I mean, for those of you who are listening, M Butterfly is sort of uh, fictional history. I mean, it's based on a real thing that happened between this uh, Chinese spy played by you um and it's a a memory play so so the context is John Lithgow or whoever plays the role is in a Paris prison, and it was present day at the time you were doing the play um looking yes. back over a, a twenty year relationship with with um
3: a this person this, this person, person who, who he yeah. I'm oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, sorry,
1: no, I'm I'm losing the phrase. Is it called Peking Opera? Am I remembering? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Peking Opera um,
3: star or or performer. Yes, and 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 idolizing her and kind of putting her on a pedestal as this kind of ideal, kind of feminine mystique, kind of um, Eastern kind of um, fantasy. Mm-hmm. And because based of that based on he's stereotypes
1: unable, a little based bit based on
3: stereotypes, yes. Yep. And 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 because of that, he's unable to see it it clouds his judgment as to the, the actual truth of the person that he's actually in this relationship with. That's kind of the germ of the play, I guess.
1: Now, when you talked earlier about, you know, I can say my parents' address at the time because social media wasn't sort of hadn't taken over uh, yeah, life yeah. as we know it, yeah. the the even the movie. The Crying Game had not yeah. come out yet when you were doing this show. Oh, yeah. Um, no. And you were you were a newcomer and your name did just say BD in the program. Were you aware of the moment? What was that like for, for a time where many audience members could actually come into a show not knowing what the... I'm going to call it a gimmick, even though that's not the right word for it. But the surprise, the, the, yeah. The, I mean, I it
3: w- there to... was a hook. There was <laughs> a hook to it. It, 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 and 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 the hook really got people at that time. It would not. Well, it, and we, I think, we kind of see there was a, a, a perf- perfectly nice revival that just uh, opened mm-hmm. and closed it last year, or, or, or a year or two ago, and 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 I think we see uh, of all the things we learn from time going by is that. You know, plays play differently in different time periods, and 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 the sophistication of the audience at this point does not really allow there to be any great revelation. Um, also, re- David really kind of retooled the play, and the revelation is not really as big a part of right. it. Right, understanding. It yeah, the times understanding we're this. living
1: in. Yeah. And also that that it's our hope that it it wouldn't be uh, something that someone would want to hide or be shocked by. That we live in a time where we would not that, need to absolutely. hide
3: it's the opposite yes yeah. the, opp- the, the 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 stigma the stigma of it fed into the um the the audience's um fascination and to the audience's um delight in discovering this and that is a precious kind of thing that happened at that time that would not happen now and that's really fun to think back on because that was what made the play fun to do. You, you could feel the audience um, and you could feel the audience kind of catching on. You know, it's, it's the craziest thing, Ilana, because it's written right in the play. It's written in the play, in the first few lines of the play, what the play is about, and people just didn't really hear it. They were very mm. much like the character that is telling them the story. They, they kind of didn't want, they just took me at face value and and as the play develops and the play um unfolds they realize m- m- with more and more gravity what he's actually talking about right and then there was this kind of theatrical moment where i unmask myself and it 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 caused it caused um a fair amount of um uh, what's the word um
1: uh, well i'm sure there was an audible reaction
3: There was an audible, there was an audible reaction. Well, the the, the one thing that happened was that really basically very quickly, I took my makeup off in front of the audience and I took my makeup off and it took four minutes to take my makeup off in this really ritualized, stylized, choreographed kind of thing. But it was me just sitting at a makeup table, um, first taking my makeup off and then dressing my, undressing and redressing myself as a man and the way the director chose to do this particular moment is he called it an intermission, and I said at the end of it, at the end of the scene prior, I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to change now. You know, you guys go do, have a cigarette and do whatever you're going to do, but I'll meet you back here later, and Mm -hmm. they all knew that I was going to change, and the house lights came on, and then I sat there for four minutes, and nobody ever, ever, ever moved. They just sat there for four minutes staring at me, taking my makeup off. Like some people who didn't know at that point didn't know what they were even looking at until like three minutes and 45 seconds into it. And then there were these stories of people just like losing their shit. Um, <laughs> and it was great. Uh, or, or people would bring, you know, their unwitting husband or,
1: yeah.
3: or something. And not let you, them go to
1: the bathroom. Yes. And
3: you, business. exactly. And, and then right. you would hear stories Uh, I always constantly heard stories and still hear stories of people who said someone was sitting behind me and you would not believe the reaction that they had, you know, they just kind of freaked out. So that is something that just could not, would not happen. And that, that it isn't really even um, a testament to my own performance. It really isn't. It's a testament much more to the time that we lived in when a, a man in full um, non-drag drag, if you know what I mean. It was not drag queen drag. It was kind of a different... Uh, that was the other thing that was really different. It was not drag queen drag. It was woman drag. And that d- kind of drag was not something you saw that much. And you just accepted at face value a, um, a, a guy that was was um, uh, presenting themselves that way.
1: And well, was an Especially you know, if you're it, in America.
3: Yes, and it proved, yes, especially especially right, and it, and it proved kind of the core value idea of the play, which is that you could see whatever you want if you mm-hmm. if you want to see it, and that's what most people did when they came and saw it and didn't know what it was going on. They just accepted me at face value
1: and and you started winning every award, so by the time you got to the Tonys, what was your sense? going in that night to the award ceremony. And I know you, I know you are someone who loved all things theater and and watched the Tonys. And so it, it must have been fantastical, all of it. But it, well, how did you feel that night?
3: <laughs> well, it, yeah, I, it,
1: it, it wasn't it, fantastical?
3: <laughs> it was a version of fantastical that is maybe surprising. First of all, it's a little bit like when I said, I read the script and I said, oh, this person's going to like really clean up, you know. Yes. And then then here we were and I was like, okay, well, I didn't really, you know, I, I didn't want to live under the the notion that I felt that way. You know, I, mm-hmm. I said that at one time and I thought, no, this, you, that cannot be where you're coming from when you, when we, when you go into this experience. And, and I also, this was the beginning or the, the, the turning point for me of, of appreciating the Tonys in a way that I I appreciated them before as an audience member as a fan and as a, f- a person fantasizing to be an actor and all of those wonderful things and I and I still feel the giddiness of excitement of the Tony Awards and and all of that but when I start really got down to thinking about it I became increasingly uncomfortable with the notion that we would actually pick five people a year. And then pick one person to be the best one of those five people. It makes no sense to me. It continues to make no sense to me. I find it really uncomfortable, and I and I think this is one of the reasons why I don't really um, think about it that much.
4: Mm-hmm. You know,
3: as soon as as soon as the Tonys were over, I sent the Tony to my mom. It's on her mantle. I did not want to look at it. I didn't want to think about the the legacy of it. I you know I attached. Tony Award winning to my name in my bio, my agents make me do it, and I, I'm happy to do it because it's a fact. But at the same time, it it, it's, it fills me with a kind of conflict about why we're doing what we're doing and what the point of it really is. And it can cloud one's agenda when one is making choices in a, in a, in a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can cloud one's agenda when one is choosing what kind of work one wants to do or not. And, and I don't want to be clouded by that. And, and so I'm constantly turning it over in my head. What do I really think about it? What do I, what is my appreciation for it? It has opened doors for me. It has created an identity for me that, like I said, is attached to me now that I cannot um, deny. And at the same time, it is what it is. I guess. I guess I try to keep it in a certain perspective, and I encourage other people to try to keep it in perspective about what it is that it really is. It is it, a celebration of the theater. That night is undeniably a celebration of the theater. When and in a, and a in a medium that deserves and needs it. You know, we every yeah. year we go. Did people watch it? Do people understand what the theater is? You know, will CBS continue to, to air it? Because it's, you know, it's a never, nobody, nobody ever watches it. And every year we, we pat ourselves on the back and we, we turn to each other and we say, that was good, right? I mean, that showed well. We, we, we came off well, didn't we? Mm-hmm. And, and we want that and we need that. And that's, that's where it's valuable to me. That's where it's kind of good. The kids at home who say, you know, they want to be actors and they see someone that looks like them. I'm all for that. That's like my thing. To answer your question, walking in the door, I thought, well, you know what? I did what I wanted to do. I went through that rehearsal process. I think that I did the work that I wanted to do. Like I think I was asking myself, did you do this for anybody but yourself? And I really could say at the end that I that I did because I had a challenge. the, The direct my relationship with the director was was really interesting and conflicted. It was never. It was never impossible or um um trauma it was a little traumatic but it was it wasn't (laughs) it wasn't really um uh, it was a situation in which I had to kind of think to myself okay where's where am I am I am I am I in danger of losing what it is that I want to do because of Mm -hmm. the way that I'm Um, uh, having to negotiate the uh, rehearsal process. And I, at the end of the day, and this was when I say 12 minutes to opening night, and I was having this kind of, I can't go on kind of feeling in this dramatic way on opening night. I, I kind of was able to say, no, 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 you have done what you wanted to do. And that was what you wanted. And the people that are in the audience now, my mom and my dad and all of the family and stuff, they were the ones who actually were the, the the supposedly the recipients of the energy that I was putting into it. And I was glad that I could say that at the end that I, okay, no, you know what, dude, I never did this for you. I never was doing this for you. And so uh, that is kind of what walking into the Tonys was like for me. My brother, my older brother, Brian, who um, was never able to come to the show was my date to the Tonys. And, um, I, he sat by my side and, and he was a very leveling for the most part, a very leveling and very, very open to the, all the things that I wanted to bring to it. You know, we're not going to get all excited. We're not going to hope that I win. We're just going to enjoy the evening and we're going to enjoy seeing all the famous people and being at the rehearsal and doing all of this stuff. And, and I was able to do that. And I am happy that I was able to do that and not get Kind of caught up in it, and I, I feel like, Elon. I feel like, in my day to day life, I'm always trying to remind myself of that. Like, okay, let's let's just enjoy the party part, and let's not like get all um, carried away with with the trappings of of the swag and suitcases full of things that you don't need that you get, you know, in the in the red carpet room and mm-hmm. and all of that stuff. That's mm-hmm. really easy to do. And, um, and so that's how I felt going into it. I was very, um, I said, I was very, whatever happens, happens. And in fact, I was very, it's okay to not win. It's really okay. And it's, 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 it's okay to, and I, so I didn't hope to win or I didn't kind of stoke that flame and, and I ended up having a good time and I ended up winning. And, 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 and I think that I would like to say that if I hadn't, I would have been Okay. And that would have been nice and that it would have been a fun evening. And there are lots of memories I have of it and of the people who were uh, a part of it around me that night that I can never forget.
1: Well, I usually end this conversation with three questions. You've already answered two of them. I ask, who did you bring? And you brought your brother. Did you, were any, were you allowed to bring any other guests that evening?
3: Um... No, I don't think I was. I, I don't remember if I, you know, first of all, I was, I was in, at a stage in my life where I didn't ask, you know, it's like, oh, this is, this right. is. Right. Oh, I, I get I one me. ticket? Okay. Yeah. Right. I'll take, whatever. I wasn't, and nowadays I'd say, you know, actually I need 10. <laughs> <Exactly>. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Get back to me. Um, exactly. Um, but, but no, he, it was that, it was him, but then, you know, it was such a wonderful crew and, and I had a wonderful dresser who I is very dear to my heart and, 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 you know, and on that night for a role like that, you know, the track that I had for the Tonys that night, you know, we had to perform scenes, which you yeah. don't do anymore. And then, and then I was all dolled up to perform the scene. And then I had to kind of like do a quick, you know, well, you know all about the Tony quick change, but the, the the Tony quick change to go get myself in the seat. And, all and that.
1: what did you wear on that night?
3: I wore um, John Dunn, who assisted uh, Eiko Ishioka, the costume de- designer, on M. Butterfly, magnificent costume designer, um, gone too soon. Uh, John Dunn, who was her American assistant and really helped her through that whole process, uh, designed me a, a tux jacket that was a long coat with which was made of silk and leather and it had a like leather yoke on it. And um, Bob Colbath, the... the um, uh the shop in the new york uh costume shop built it and it had purple lining and i wore cowboy boots and i wore leather pants i think i think i wore leather pants and um and a white uh kind of seinfeldy poet shirt kind of thing yes. <laughs> and part um,
1: seinfeld part george washington exactly
3: yes part <laughs> hamilton part um, exactly yeah and, and yeah and what was the, yeah.
1: The last question is Where is your Tony? So you were saying at the time you sent it to your to Roberta Wong, oh, yeah. does it still live in her home?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's on her mantle in a little lucite box she bought to put it in so that it doesn't get dust on it. And it's and on the mantle. You can visit it
1: from time to time.
3: Yeah, I hardly remember that it's there, but I can visit it from time to time. A theater at one time wanted to borrow it for a benefit and that was a big kind of a thing and I I I shipped it to them and they shipped it back to her. Right. And 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 it's on the, you know, you know it's like it's classic. It's it's a classic my mother, anyone's mother kind of situation. It's on the mantel with pictures of my son and her other grandkids and their graduation pictures and you know, people's wedding pictures and stuff like that.
1: B.D. Wong, I cannot thank you enough for being on this podcast oh, today. I'm you amazing. know how I feel about you. And yeah. um, thank <laughs> you for sharing so much of yourself today with of such course. clarity and generosity. I love well, you.
3: thank you. I love you too.
1: And The Tony Goes To is produced by Alan Seals for the Broadway Podcast Network. The music and lyrics for the theme song were written by Georgia Famusa. Theme song orchestration by Alexander Sage Oyen. Episodes are edited by Derek Gunther. Thank you to Parody Bill for the graphics. And please don't forget to go to the iTunes show page and rate and review the show. Thanks for listening. Excerpt from the Tony Awards used with permission of Tony Awards Productions.